Hey guys, welcome to Zeitgeist. Um, I'm Jordan, and you are about to hear an episode where we talk all about House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings. Um, I've worked very hard on editing this podcast down to a reasonable length, but you may have noticed that the podcast is actually a little too short in some places. Um, Clipped around, and um, there's also a little bit of compression happening. Um, This is some growing pains, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. So thank you for bearing with us. You'll hear a major jump in quality in the second half of the episode, and I suspect within a couple of episodes you'll hear the quality just skyrocket. So thank you for listening, and make sure to tell your friends all about this podcast. And uh, as you'll see, regardless of any technical issues, our discussion is as typical, um, revelatory, and extremely exciting. So enjoy. Welcome to Zeitgeist. After a little hiatus, we're back and we're talking about some really, really big shows. So as you can imagine, we've been doing a lot of preparing. We today are talking about the two fantasy epics of the small screen, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and the Game of Thrones spinoff called House of the Dragon. Niv, how do you feel about the uh, state of fantasy here in 2022? Pretty great. I feel like both sci-fi and fantasy have always been like the benchmark of, of where the best stories gravitate to, especially in our generation, I think started from Lord of the Rings and at least in the fantasy realm and then at Star Wars and Star Trek way before that with sci-fi. And I think it's just like expanded. But I think like the big sort of like things movies gravitate towards now or just shows is, um, you know, superhero stuff that we've talked about at nauseum on our podcast, um, sci-fi stuff. Well, and you can't get away from superheroes. No, you can't. But in itself, it's become like the new wave of fantasy in a lot of ways. And sci-fi, I feel like it's combined the two. Because you look at like a movie like Shang-Chi, which is has like a lot of fantastical elements in it. But then you look at Iron Man, which has like a bunch of like sci-fi technological elements of it or Endgame which has like time travel on it. You know, it's like a mix of a lot of things. But then when you think about fantasy, you know, Game of Thrones was the largest, heart, highest rated TV show of our generation, if not all generations. And you look at like the TV shows that are really highly rated right now in terms of watching. And it's like Star Wars TV shows, you know, and other Marvel stuff. So I I just think that that kind of thing has always made people really excited. And Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and uh, the great Game of Thrones spinoff, House of the Dragon, have another thing that makes people attracted to these shows. And it's just the fact that they're just like extensions of of universes that they already know and love. So it taps into it being like the sequel, prequel, 
spin-off mentality that this industry has become really obsessed with because that's the only sort of way they know something will be successful by just like making a new product in a franchise that has already attracted like a bunch of people. It's interesting you're tapping into that both series were at their time a absolute phenomenon, right? Like, and in some ways, which we'll get into also with the Rings of Power shortly, is that uh, this cultural phenomenon really was like unique like when lord of the rings came out it won an academy award effectively sort of as a congratulatory thing because academy awards don't usually go to big blockbusters like a uh, return of the king yeah and that's the thing like new hope when it came out, like Star Wars A New Hope episode four, when it came out, it was nominated for an Oscar. And so did, I believe, um, Empire Strikes Back. But Return of the King won. But Return of the King won. That's a thing. Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers were both nominated for Best Picture. They didn't win. But as you said, Return of the King won. So it was acceptable for these types of movies to be nominated before. But, you know, it was essentially, I think, one of the first blockbusters, if not the first blockbuster to win like an Academy Award, especially in a genre that wasn't biblical. A lot of these stories have mm -hmm. some kind of sister alongside it, right? If we're moving into the story of House of the Dragon, a lot of the creative voice of the House of the Dragon team has made reference uh, either loosely or directly to the um, era of, of bygone, sort of the Arthurian uh, medieval era, and that that was what they were inspired by when creating House of the Dragon. How do you feel it uh, lines up to that? And I mean, obviously no dragons in the true medieval era, but it's a interesting sort of coalescence that it is both historical and not. Yeah, absolutely. Because like it, it taps into like all great stories do. They tap into things that are real and things that are made up. Writers generally like take real life inspiration and then they run away with it to create something a little bit larger than life. In this case, it's dragons and a fake continent and fake cultures, but they're still stemmed into cultures that we find to be recognizable, right? And and sort of locations that, that are not like otherworldly or science fiction-y, but more rooted into something more medieval and something closer to something that we understand as a whole. I mean, the original Game of Thrones drew on a conflict in Britain called the War of the Roses and sort of like the battle of succession that took such a long time to sort of resolve. And in this case, it's it's like a similar story, but and yet it's 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 taken a lot more fantastical elements in to make it very different from the history that we know or the history that's part of this world that we live in because as you said it involves a heck of a lot of, of, a lot of dragons so um tell me about the source material in which this uh tv show was based upon right uh famously when thrones ended they wanted to keep the story running in a sense and so mm -hmm. they produced a pilot that was not correlated at all to house of the dragon and from what i gather cost upwards of millions of dollars and ended up getting scrapped right i i i will have to fact check this but i believe it was a hundred million dollar pilot and it 
was it was scrapped it was entirely benched mm-hmm. and then they created this pilot and of course the pilot succeeded they have 10 episodes and they are all now streaming on hbo max but it was based off of a history called fire and blood yes so you're a little bit wrong like the original game of thrones had a pilot that they completely scrapped um so they made a pilot the script was terrible everything was terrible and they even recast it in in some parts like some actors stayed the same other actors did not and they completely like remade it and then it became the smash hit that it became like the pilot was amazing it said like a whole it ushered in the whole game of thrones into the zeitgeist of our society wow that's really Um, interesting it's a separate fact that is also um similar but distinct in that it happened twice it did happen last year with a pilot starring naomi watts i did just find it and this scrapped pilot was right this scrapped pilot was over 30 million dollars. yes and that's what i was gonna say yeah so the the other scrap pilot i think was called blood moon um i'm not a thousand percent sure but basically after game of thrones ended hbo and warner still had the rights to make more shows based on franchise and the world of game of thrones and they were hungry and desperate to because it was a massive cash cow that it had ended you know so they wanted to make like an immediate like follow-up show so they could you know keep the momentum going on this franchise and explore other spots of history that george constructed in his in his world you know there are no books necessarily that talk in depth about the history of westeros that he created but there are like you know snippets of that history that appear in his like main line of books a song of ice and fire and he made as you said like an, a two history volumes called fire and blood that i think detail like the targaryen line of king uh, and how each king king sort of reacted differently to you know his duty as king of the seven kingdom which in itself is interesting like i've i've read so much of this stuff at the uh, song of ice and fire wiki as opposed to the game of thrones wiki because it actually talks about details and facts from the books not things that have been created for the tv show adaptation and i knew that out of all the histories the dance of dragons which the house of the dragon adapted was the most interesting of them all because there was actually like a lot of intriguing elements to this conflict that were just ripe for adaptation. So even though I heard that there were so many adaptations on the table, which again, one of them was the Naomi Watts adaptation that was, I believe, going to deal with like a thousand years before Game of Thrones happened. To give you context, if I remember correctly, the House of the Dragon happens around 200 years before Game of Thrones. I think it's like 187 years or something like that. But they wanted to go into like a really, really past different historical period altogether with the Naomi Watts pilot. And I think that's what made it fail because it was so disconnected from the world and the history that we already knew. And it, it effectively effectively like looked at like a pre- prehistoric period of this world or what would be 
considered sort of a prehistoric period of this world, whereas House of the Dragon didn't. It also, you know, like I think they were establishing a lot of new things, whereas House of the Dragon, again, wasn't. Like, like look, a House of the Dragon conversely adapts the Dance of Dragons or the history that's available to us from the Dance of Dragons really, really well. Again, the Dance of Dragon is a civil war that happens between uh, two rival Targaryen families, which are like the ruling family of the seven kingdoms of Westeros in this world. And uh, basically it follows really well the the bullet points that are presented to us through George's books and through Fire and Blood. And by reading this wiki before, you know, A Dance of Dragons was even adapted into House of the Dragon, which was many, many years ago while Game of Thrones was still happening, I already knew from start to finish what was going to happen. Like, in fact, as I was watching House of the Dragon, like I was already spoiled to everything because I was like, okay, this is going to happen in this episode. This is going to happen in this episode because there was just enough for me to be like, okay, I remember this. I remember this part of the conflict of the Dance of Dragons. So likely this is how it's going to be. But conversely, George does something really interesting as a writer. He writes... Uh, his characters based on perspective, meaning that each chapter is told from a specific perspective of a specific character, and it constantly shifts each chapter. So you're only getting their perspective of the story. He does the same thing when he talks about like the historical elements of his world. So in a lot of these cases, when they're talking about the Dance of Dragons conflict, you're hearing it in two different perspectives, and you're not sure which one is the truth. But what House of the Dragon does really, really well, and I really want to commend this, is they take both those perspectives, and they make them both true and both false. So they're combining them to make it that from a specific perspective, both things can be true but ultimately it's still different from both of these perspectives like the actual truth is still different from both perspectives presented but it is similar enough to be like oh wow this is truth and this is like a subjective view on this truth which still makes the show surprising to me as a person who already knows technically what's going to happen in this conflict and in this show well and the great thing is is that the objectivity of the camera and of what we see is somewhat more deep and layered than the um just you know what we see it's it's the events of the show that predated and and come before and after there's a lot of drama that happens with Rhaenyra mid-season that is um you know debatable on how exactly um the motivations are even though we do see some pretty wild things that Rhaenyra does um it's you know debatable on sort of her intentions so we'll get into that in a moment but she's the main character of the series and I uh I hope that um most of our audience who is listening is somewhat familiar with House of the Dragon because it gets pretty nitty-gritty um differently and I know I probably said it at the uh, top of the episode's listeners but if you haven't already um go ahead and at least get a perfunctory view through Wicked before um, proceeding because we are going to be getting a little bit into spoilers but so you also have uh, later into it uh, the antagonist Alicent Hightower who is the uh, queen crowned at the end of the second episode and she has a moment like that later on and you see that and you 
sort of at the end of the second episode um she becomes the queen the queen of the targaryen dynasty and there is some confusion um later later in about what she saw and her perspective and of course then it comes into question about whether her perspective really matters um whether that um absolves her from the ethical quandaries that it ensues and ensnares and creates a war that will propel i think even past the upcoming season too so diving into sort of the main cast um we've got a uh, king viserys right so king viserys he's generally a very kind sentimental man obviously he is the ruler of the targaryen dynasty and he's sort of the uh point of view from the early parts of the pilot in my eyes um he's not the main character but he's kind of uh crux for a lot of the drama of the show, right? So uh, King Viserys is, uh, he's played by... Patty Kennison. Yeah, and um, what other elements about him are uh, noteworthy in your eyes? I mean, he's known as Viserys, like, the peaceful. He has sort of inherited, like, a period of peace from his grandfather i believe it's not necessarily his father but like his great uncle or his grandfather uh king jaceris who was like the longest reigning monarch of the seven kingdoms and he was known very well for his peaceful reign uh but viserys you know his his sort of ascendancy to the throne was was in question not because Viserys himself was unworthy of the throne but because like the the, the events of the show start with like a tribunal to decide who is going to basically be the heir to the iron throne to king Viserys who i i just remember he's Viserys's great uncle and Viserys's challenger for the throne is Viserys's daughter princess Rhaenys who is because she is his daughter like there is a big fight um, among you know the nobles to put her right on the so already we're getting a lot into the weeds here Rhaenys is uh, generally in more of the Valarian section during the events of the show right so she's married up to lord corliss uh that's an interesting point of view character because he is um very separate from the targaryen dynasty in principle because he's known as the sea snake but in um actuality he stays pretty close to the targaryens and though a little bit um unsure sometimes generally sides with viserys and um his daughter which we'll talk about in a second rhaenyra yeah but that's the thing like that whole tribunal to decide the heir to the iron throne who who will succeed jaharis is sort of like a precursor to the whole premise of the show because the show focus on focuses on like the succession of a specific person it, like we'll get into detail about soon but essentially Viserys wins you know that tribunal not because of his you know rights or experience or talent over Renice as a potential monarch but purely because he's a man because the nobles of the seven kingdoms purely see it as like oh this is a man's job and a woman should not do this job even though Renice in some in some regard had a better claim to the throne 
than Viserys did. But as I said, that whole like succession thing and whole like female succession thing is what empowers the very conflict of this show. Yeah, in particularly, that is the uh, essence of the drama from day to day is whether a woman should be the successor to our King Viserys, who we know throughout season one as the main head honcho. He is the big guy and his absence will and ultimately does leave a major hole in the world of House of the Dragon. Yeah, because, you know, at the very start of the show, we're shown that he has only one daughter and he's very desperate to have a son. He was very desperate because he, not out of this, out of like, oh, I need to have a son because I want to have a son, but more like he is so worried about the idea that not having a son will destroy the realm, you know, will destroy his his seven kingdoms and it will lead it to to sort of like this big, you know, conflict or, or civil war or anything because he's aware of sort of how these sort of successions hinge on it being like a male successor. But then, you know, when he doesn't necessarily get it, uh, he confides in our main like he he starts putting all his chips into the main character of the story which is his only daughter Rhaenyra like only daughter in the beginning the ultimate successor to him evermore now and one query i want to posit is that um, Viserys uh the king his reasoning for continuing to stay fast on Rhaenyra as you mentioned he ends up having a second wife and several children through that second wife which I would love for you to detail out very shortly. Yeah. Um, the uh, the family tree starts to balloon and get a little bit difficult to understand as the series progresses. But right, Rhaenyra is the only daughter, the only child of his first wife, who Viserys loved dearly and really didn't um, yeah. want to tarnish her name by remarrying. So in a large part, I think the reason why he yeah. stayed so steadfast to Rhaenyra uh, alongside the fact that I think she really honestly would make for a very good queen is that, you know, despite her faults, is that she um, reminds him of his love, his long lost love who died too young during one of the many yeah. childbirth deaths of the series. Yeah, which he pushed for because, again, he was so desperate to have a son that he consistently got her pregnant, even though Emma, which is the queen, you know, struggled with pregnant. The first queen struggled with uh, pregnancies before, and they physically drained her health each time. And yet, he still pushed for her to conceive another child in the hopes that it would be a son. To the point where it eventually did kill her, and that's sort of the the fo focus of that pilot. Because Viserys gets his son, he is given a very difficult decision because the uh, the birth is killing his his wife and he's presented with this choice of either he lets his wife die with the child in that childbirth or they you know essentially do a medieval cesarean where they cut the baby out they show but, him that choice and he ends up trying to you know save his wife and the baby save and the baby works. yeah because he's he can't save his wife right there they don't have like the medical wonders we have today to keep someone with a cesarean alive you know like it's too it's 
it's losing too much blood. Um, and yet he does his best to cha- save the child. It's like a reasonable choice to make to try to save at least one of the lives. The child immediately dies. And it's, it's as if that choice didn't matter. Well, and that is generally the ethos of a lot of the drama that happens in this show, which is sort of a a dire tone. It says this, you know, it it keeps signaling that this is a a world of lesser technology and lesser knowledge, and we have come a long way since then, and sometimes things just are bad. Sometimes things just suck. Uh, No more so than the the realm of Daemon Targaryen, who is his his brother, his younger brother. And he's, like, Daemon is in my opinion one of the more interesting characters of this show because he's happy that Viserys doesn't have a son because that de facto like makes Damon the heir because he's the only like other male because rules of successions dictate at least in medieval time that if the king doesn't have a son then the next person in line would be his younger brother if he has a younger brother which only makes sense because they then the younger brother can sire a son and the lineage continues in the way that they want it to which is singular family and male heirs then there's also the um area which we might have touched on which is Rhaenys, which is very similar to rhaenyra but not quite (laughs) in some ways they're mirror images of each other you say the queen who never was uh so talk about um and um, Corliss the sea snake. So, as I said, Renice was the actual daughter of the previous king, Jaceris, the king before Viserys, Jaharis Viserys. And she was essentially, you know, just passed over, as I said, because she was a woman. But she married into a family that is very powerful in the Seven Kingdoms. Um, another piece of history the Targaryens and the Valerians, the family she married into, are essentially like colonizers of the Seven Kingdoms. They came from a totally, these two families came from a totally different continent altogether. They came to Westeros, where the Seven Kingdoms are, and they essentially conquered them. The only reason they got, they were able to conquer them it was through dragons, because they were able to bring dragons and they were able to essentially, you know, put everyone under their feet. And because I know the history I do need to make a correction. Technically, back then, it was the Six Kingdoms. It wasn't the Seven Kingdoms because uh, the Kingdom of Dorne didn't become part of the Seven Kingdoms until much later in the Westerosi history or whatever. Um, It gets a little convoluted, but, you know, when you read into it, it is like the world and the history that George R. R. Martin created is pretty awesome and cool yeah and it's very very detailed in terms of like the valerians like again they are the second they're they're, they come from valeria which the targaryens came from as well you know they also have dragons right Um, lord corliss also have silver hair silver hair yeah like both families have silver hair in the books like they aren't you know black the valerians are black in this show and this is because you know like they wanted to like the original game of thrones there were not a lot of people of color and they wanted to correct that. And so they wanted to give an opportunity to sort of progress beyond just sort of white Anglic looking people, considering it is a made up world and you're allowed to stretch things to your own imagination. And I think it's a great visual motif because the characters who are part of that family are instantly recognizable. A Valerian daughter similarly looks like Corliss. Yeah. And later on, you do see his young daughter 
daughter who is being shopped around for marriage. And you know instantly which one is a Valarian because they're the only silver-haired black people on the show. And when you get into Otto Hightower and all of the other men on the council, it's sometimes a little difficult to gather who is what and which one is uh, Hightower's brother and which one is just some other random guy that I really still don't know anything about. But it also becomes like a point of great drama, right? Like in the middle of the show, sort of uh, Rhaenyra's lineage, uh, like comes into question. Like her continue, like her bearing sons comes into question uh, due to sort of like the strong Valerian bloodline, as because as, as Jordan says, it's passed down really strongly. Like children from you know the Targaryens, uh, like side of things, are expected to have silver hair when they're born. For the Valerians, they're expected to have silver hair and to be black when they're born. You know, it's, it's stuff like that. And they continually talk about sort of like tying up the bloodlines in a really sort of medieval and archaic sort of way that, again, kind of re, uh, realigns a lot of these things. Yeah. But um, the uh, usurpers effectively to this uh, are the Hightowers, right? So Hightower is the other major family in my mind. Um, and then I'd love for you to chop in yeah. uh, the other sort of people that might not necessarily be part of these big three kind of coming in, right? So Alicent is not tied to this family. She's uh, she's someone who was beloved by the king Viserys and then consequently became queen, right? And Otto comes into conflict with Rhaenyra pretty quickly. So is there any, um, any history about the Hightower's from the books that might be of note, um, because Otto seems to be very interesting in principle. Um, he becomes more interesting as the season progresses. He's definitely yeah. someone that, first of all, um, when it, when it or the first episode, I was a little confused on who he was and why he mattered. And by the last episode, I found him to be one of the more compelling characters on the show yeah. at large. Rhea, and he's played by an amazing actor, you know, Rhys Evans, who's like you know, pretty famous. I remember seeing him first in Notting Hill and um, like Harry Potter. And he's like always done like bit roles. He was like the lizard and uh, the Sam Webb. Oh, in lizard. the Webb movies. Yeah. yeah. Amazing Spider-Man. And then of course he got his three minutes in No Way Home, right? Yeah. yeah he yeah, seems yeah. like one of those actors and I'm looking at his page now and he's very much one of those actors from uh, Britain that just sort of clock in and out of uh, movies like a nine to five yeah. he did all sorts of british style you know you you think of a british movie that was made in the last 20 years he might have been a part of it harry potter he yeah. played in notting hill etc cetera, etc cetera. and now of course mm -hmm. dragon yeah and that's the thing like he I, I think this is the first time i've seen him since notting hill being utilized to his the best of his abilities because he is a really amazing actor he's just like hasn't been given a lot of meat to chew on in other movies that i've seen him in which has always been like a shame um so i'm glad he's getting his due but to answer your question you know like in the books and in the history that george r, r. martin create created allison hightower was essentially given a much less sympathetic view from like a reader perspective because it felt in the books that she was just like the sort of evil stepmother to Rhaenyra um, or at least like she quickly became that like at first they they were you know kind to each other but then you know 
it very much became like, oh, I am bearing actual sons for Viserys. Spoiler, she bears actual sons. So it creates like a huge moment of conflict of like, who should succeed Viserys now, Rhaenyra or uh, Alice and Hightower's sons. And, um, but the show does something really interesting. Again, that whole idea of perspective, right? They make Rhaenyra and Allison childhood friends, uh, which just brings the stakes up even more and, and makes like their relationship that much more integral to the conflict of the show because it's wow it's amazing that it wasn't originally in the yeah, books. yeah it's not it's absolutely not and um and i think that's again that idea of perspective of like the book only mentions that they were nice to each other in the beginning of their relationship that's all it does but then in the book eh, eh, not in the books but in the show it pushes it even further of like, yeah, let's take that perspective. Let's take that idea that they were nice to each other. But how about we actually look deeper and give like as if the objective truth that they were not only kind to each other, but they were best friends. It makes perfect sense that they would be. And it's natural that eventually uh, the great king would some kind of contact with Alicent and consequently form his own relationship with her. Now, yeah. of course, it does feel a little bit skeevy in the show just by nature of it being what it is. They don't hide away from the fact that she is very young when she marries the king. But nonetheless, it's still a major part of the show that these two are friends that they're even best friends and i actually this is one critique i have with the show at large which is that i feel like it doesn't uh take its time much with these yeah. sorts of things you get some relationship with those two early on but in my view the first episode is not terribly focused on these two um certainly not going out and having adventures and having fun which i don't think the show does nearly enough um it does it i believe one kind of major outing in the third episode but beyond that it's a lot of sort of the doom and gloom of the day-to-day -day, which doesn't allow for us to bond with Alicent and Rhaenyra nearly as much as I wish we could have because I really think it would have sold the uh, conflict a little bit deeper and by the end of the season I think it really could have turned the turned the the sword in our guts in a really interesting and effective way that it doesn't happen with just 10 hours of tv it happens with maybe 20 or 30 yeah and i agree with that i do um but that's the thing you know like as you, you sort of mentioned the first two episodes that were given when there there's a lot of time jumps that happen in this show and there are a lot of cast changes that happen in this show of like younger actors being transformed into like older actors portraying like an older version. Let's touch on that in a moment. Yeah, but you know, getting back to sort of what you were talking about, you know, like because we, we didn't even mention Otto Hightower and his sort of like role in this, which ties everything sort of together. Otto Hightower is the hand of the king. For those who know Game of Thrones but haven't seen House of the Dragon, that essentially means like he's the chancellor to the king or he's like the grand advisor to the king he's a little, literally the second most powerful man in the kingdom because he has the ear of the king um and otto has uh, like an interesting rivalry with daemon targaryen viserys's brother and even corliss like he j is just like mistrustful towards you know daemon and corliss because they hunger the iron throne and he and his in his way wants to protect his iron throne from people he feels would misuse its power so he, as soon as Emma dies, as soon as Viserys's first wife dies, he grooms his own daughter, Alicent Hightower, to essentially form a relationship 
with the king in the hopes that he will eventually choose her to be his second wife, which happens. It does happen, and he gets what he wants. It does, and I think uh, Otto does a pretty astute job, and I think the show actually does a really good job, um, particularly in this way of uh, seeding all of this political intrigue and conflict, which is really hard to pull off. But that is, I think, ultimately House of the Dragon's utmost um, achievement is being able to seed all of this factionary, opinion-based succession drama in a really tight and concrete way with a lot of characters and it just pummels it forward and you get a lot of changes happening in a short amount of time which i have my qualms about but you know it's all there everything that the story needs to move forward with is all there and it's all concrete and it's all really pretty dense um particularly that of auto high towers plot to ultimately seat the king with his own choice yeah absolutely and it also comes into conflict with the idea that he feels as if Rhaenyra is not worthy enough for the throne not necessarily again because you know she is she would be a bad ruler in fact there was a lot of arguments made in the show that she would actually make a quite effective ruler and even Otto recognizes it in certain points. Um, but I think it just comes back to Otto recognizing that Rhaenyra is a woman, like the world of Westeros expects a man to lead them. And he worries that there'll be like a war if Rhaenyra becomes queen, which he makes even more possible by supplanting his daughter Alicent and force and like essentially conniving his way into having grandchildren through Viserys, like royal grandchildren that are boys, because that's how he also convinces Alicent to sort of turn against Rhaenyra, because he's like, well, now you have sons who pose a threat to Rhaenyra's rule. And if they pose a threat to Rhaenyra's rule, what do you think will happen? Do you think she will just let you live? No, she will kill you. She will kill your children and she will kill your children's children to protect her throne. And uh, ultimately, Otto just ends up creating a lot of problems for himself that he himself seeded in. Yeah, but with purpose, right? And that's what makes it ingenious because like exactly. he's, he's obviously- And a point of view yeah. and a very clear motivation that is brought upon by what is of its time to be um, political tactic. Yeah, because he is obviously like gave himself like a good reason why he should do what he's doing. He's telling himself, I'm protecting the realm. I'm just making a line that's stronger and will be more secure and therefore be better for the realm by creating a male heir and creating a queen that I can control, you know? But in reality, when you actually look at it, he's just politically ambitious. He wants, you know, his his lineage to be the leaders of Westeros. That's the plain and simple. He wants power, but he's just excusing that hunger for power and his hunger for ambition by saying, oh, I'm just serving the realm. I'm just doing the, my job as him. Moving from uh, Otto's plot uh i do want to talk a little bit more about cast because there are a number of excellent actors um beyond some of the old pros which i mean there are many of those as well um i mean particularly one that covers both realms is matt smith who does an exceedingly astounding job playing damon targaryen the sort of bad boy of the show at large 
you know, I almost feel like he just kind of walks in and like Black Adams his way through the scene. You know, he in political and um, in just pure charisma, just like absolutely and sometimes literally slaughter everyone else on screen with him. He just brings the heat. He shows up. He does what he does best. And ultimately, his character might not be nearly half as interesting without Matt Smith doing what he does best. Yeah, and I I feel like that's the thing. Damon was always poised to be the breakout character of this show, just because uh, even George R. R. Martin admitted once, like in an interview I saw many years ago, but it stuck into my mind that his favorite Targaryen character he ever made was Damon Targaryen, you know? And he's made a lot of Targaryen characters. Again, he made a whole history of Targaryen characters. And yet his favorite one is this not even king, but like younger brother of a king. But it's such a difficult role to play because this world is already like grim and dark and awful to be in. And Damon represents another version of how worse it can get. But he plays it so well that he it creates almost joy every time you watch him like do something even though it's like not great because damon is such like is such a mean character such a power hungry character there's something really innocent about him something that is genuinely good that's just buried deep within him and it's almost like that diamond in the rough well he's sort of like a feral tiger right it's not that he necessarily thinks that the feral things he's doing are moral or immoral. He doesn't think in terms of moral or immoral. He thinks in terms of what he well, wants. Well, it's also just like that stereotypical image of a bad boy. You know, like, what? why are girls drawn to a bad boy, right? It's because he's dangerous. But at the same time, they're like, oh, but I can change him. There's good inside him that only I can see. I feel like we're all those girls, Everybody in the audience that is watching House of the Dragon is those girls looking at Matt Smith, looking at Damon Darkarian, being like, ooh, he's so sexy. And, you know, he's such a bad boy. But there is good inside him. I know there is. We've all been collectively fooled. The uh, two characters who are the um, lead uh, and antagonist, um, there are two throughout the, um, or two actors who play the one character throughout the season. And it's essentially just kind of split in half, right? Matt Smith gets to keep his seat the entire time. Um, Most of the other characters, uh, Risa Fons keeps it for the whole time. And um, a couple others as well, although a few minor characters get supplanted. Obviously the children, the uh, children of Alicent end up uh, aging up as time goes on. Patty Coniston stays the entire time the person who plays Viserys, King Viserys. And, uh, yeah, many other actors as well. But I did want to follow on the lineage of Rhaenyra and Alicent because I think both of the actors who play them are series highlights. Uh, Millie Alcock as young Rhaenyra is, I think, maybe my favorite actor in the series as a whole, even above Matt Smith. Um, And Emma Carey, in turn, both of them are virtually unknown. Obviously, they're very young actors. And they both dramatically exceed the normal grain of your child actor that can often be a little hokey looking, um, particularly Alcock, I feel like puts in all of their performance and actually exceeds um, Emma Darcy, who is still a phenomenal, phenomenal actor as well. Yeah, like 
this young Rhaenyra is such a difficult role to play because there's so much pressure in it. You know, it's where she has, like the character is built up to have such an ambitious um, ambition to be queen, but doesn't fully understand it yet. And so it's like that challenge of making her seem and feel likable. And just like Matt Smith is able to make Daemon Targaryen effortlessly likable, Millie Alcock makes Rhaenyra effortlessly likable. You know, we definitely want her to succeed, even though, you know, she does really childish things, you know, that and if a lesser actor, if a lesser actor would play that character, we would just be annoyed with it. We would sit there and being like, oh, this is so annoying and childish and a waste of my viewing time. But again, Millie Alcock brings such heart to the character, such such tragedy and yet such joy to this character that you know, we are sold on her the moment she first speaks. And the same thing with Emily Carey. Even though you're right that they that the show doesn't do enough to sell the relationship between Rhaenyra and Alicent in the beginning, I feel like both the actresses do a phenomenal job of just showing the internal struggles of those particular characters. So you still feel for both of them individually. You really feel Emily Carey and her plight of essentially being sold by her father to the king because that's how it feels like that she's actively being groomed and she knows it she knows that she's actively being groomed and that's again something that you kind of see throughout the show is the way in which these things are seeded in and they end up blossoming into these problems that sort of all progress and all coalesce as time goes on. Uh, before we move to the pacing, which I do want to get to and dive into a little bit more in detail, because it is an interesting way to create, especially a first season of TV, and it's an entire season of time jumps, right? Yeah. Um, Olivia Cook, who is a fairly well-known actress already. She was in Thoroughbreds. She starred alongside uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ready Player One, and Sound of Metal, both movies within the last five years. Um, so yeah. she is well-known. And, uh, oh, and I haven't seen that, yeah. but yeah. awesome. She um, was one of the main cast. I assume she doesn't play uh, Norman. No, but she was the main girl. She was, uh, her and Nicola Peltz were the main girls, but then Nicola Peltz's character was killed off in the first season, and she remained all rest of the seasons. But, uh, yeah, I think she was also another uh, another highlight of the show at large. Are there any other actors that you want to spotlight? I mean, Steve Toussaint, who plays Corliss, is amazing. Uh, and also, uh, we forgot to talk about Lara Strong, who is like the little finger of the show. Jordan doesn't understand that reference because he hasn't seen Game of Thrones. But he is like the conniver, uh, uh, like he's he's almost like the true mastermind of the machinations that happen in the show. And he is played. You're yeah, right. And I'm trying to remember who plays him. Um, he is. Uh, I have. Uh, I have Laris in front of me. That's Matthew Needham. Ma- yeah. I have. Uh, I have Laris as sort of the uh, the man um, outside of the dynasty, but I yeah. skipped right over him. Yeah. Laris and Kristen as well. Yeah. Um, Kristen Cole is By the other character. He's not as big. Right. Um, he's not as big in the second half of the series, but I do feel like Sir Kristen is a major a major player you know he gets sidelined but he's still sort of a a point of contact for Rhaenyra because Rhaenyra really wanted in especially the early episodes to have her own her own self her own agency and Sir Kristen is an example of that an example of how she um 
found friends and found companionship outside of her role as the future queen. And how that companionship ultimately is what drove them apart. Right, you know? exactly. And how uh, ugly that can get. But um, yeah, to, to go back to the pacing, I wanted to, I, as I mentioned, it is something that I um, found to be um, a little grating on my sensibilities as it progressed from episode to episode to episode, and it really never um, stopped being a thing that continually happened. Um, I think the show really succeeded when the time jumps were minimal. So in the episodes three through five, to me, is the high point because once the table setting is finally done in the first two episodes, which I know you, Niv, really like. Um, but after that, I feel like that's when the character drama can really thrive um, because the show yeah. quietly sets up Rhaenyra and Alicent as rivals for the throne, which, as I mentioned, would like I would have liked more time, but... You know, it was done well. The point is, is that it was still done effectively. But because of that, they're able to play off each other in uh, interesting ways, right? And so as uh, 3 through 5 goes on, you really get to see what a show would have looked like where these two young actors got to play out an entire 10-episode arc. But of course the show ends up getting in its own way, I think. Uh, instead of believing in its own character drama, it believes in something which is a little bit more focused, which isn't inherently a bad thing and is definitely not the wrong choice, especially for a Game of Thrones show. But I will posit that it is a bold one and it might end up actually alienating a lot of people like me who are more interested in viewing Game of Thrones as a high fantasy casual viewing because it really demands you to pay attention uh, to a lot of the characters and not only the big characters, but a lot of the background characters, right? In the first episode, you couldn't even imagine that uh, the best friend of Rhaenyra is end up going to pay off and become the major antagonist for the season. And by the season's end, you know, Olivia Cook has an entire episode dedicated to her, essentially, right? But I think that's the thing. When you think about, like, the original Game of Thrones, what they did really well to sort of, like, streamline the story for you is focus on one family that essentially the story revolves around. But here, it's, it's doing the same thing right but but it's done in like a completely sort of different way or specifically in game of thrones it it made you focus on two sort of major figures it it made you focus on the starks which were the ice and then it made you focus on daenerys targaryen which was the fire the two sort of heroes of the story and then it slowly opened up the world for you in really interesting and really surprising ways because you know we were essentially shown introductionary like versions of this world for the first time where we were learning histories in the background and sort of how this particular person became king what what are the seven kingdoms etc 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 the difference between that and house of the dragon is that house of the dragon is built off the belief that you are a continuing fan of game of thrones so you have watched game of thrones already and you've simply moved on from Game of Thrones to uh, House of the Dragon. It's as if like, you know, it's not like when you start watching a TV show, you don't start watching it at season seven. No, you start watching it season one. It's the same kind of concept. Essentially, like House of the Dragon is very much treated as like an extension. It's how also when you watch like a Marvel movie, you don't like when you come into a new Marvel movie or a new Marvel product and you don't really know what's going on because you haven't watched the other ones. It's sort of that 
sort of feeling. And you're right. I think it's just like annoying, but it's become like an accepted sort of thing in our in our cultural like expectation. The acceptance is that the vested interest is a given. Yeah, exactly. And to and to various points. I mean, certainly the the DC universe has that as well and in some ways it is earned because everyone knows who Superman is. But, yeah. you know, there is uh, you know, there's a line. Does everyone yeah. know who Captain America is? Okay, maybe. Um does everyone know who Ironheart is? You know, it keeps going down into the rung. Yeah. And you have to sort of balance what do we know, what can we accept the audience can automatically glom onto, what are some things that maybe will just take time for you to steep in. And ultimately, I think the main thing is that even though um, you might not know all of this stuff, generally House of the Dragon, especially in its early episodes, I feel like, does a concrete job of showing you the things that you really need to listen to and care about and so you have a broad sense of the drama even if sometimes some of the other aspects get a little bit um lost in the making yeah. one thing i do want to highlight though um which is um my other major critique with the show beyond all of the accolades and all of its ambition that i feel like really pays off um there is the underside of that which is the um gender politics and the stuff that happens in there obviously the show does have a lot of um feminism underlying it because it is a show about rhaenyra the um daughter who is fighting for her crown and is a very competent and well-rounded character and in fact all of the female characters that gives time to spotlight have that competency and have that um depth but there's also a point to show a lot of brutalization not to just the female characters but particularly the um characters do often feature childbirth this is, again, having to do with the theme of succession, which it is hyper-focused on. And I think it is often to its detriment in certain aspects, particularly in this, because it uh, hammers home a theme that uh, the main plot also rings clear, which is that womanhood is not a gift. This is the uh, idea that I see in the show again and again, that it is a tremendous burden. And these stillbirths, being a common occurrence, are depicted often in such grisly detail. Um, amazingly enough, as I was researching this, I almost forgot that one of these stillbirth scenes, um, I've almost forgot about one of them. There are uh, there are three um, stillbirth scenes, and then there's the one scene where she just gives birth a normal way. Um, Rhaenyra, that is, gives birth a normal way. Two of the scenes depicted really graphically are Rhaenyra's. Um, she lives through both and are in some way a penance that yeah. she um, performs throughout this series. It's a really graphic depiction in my eyes, um, reminding us of uniquely AFAB pain that is, to me, uh, cheap. And often I think that is, um, regardless of gender politics, it's just the fact of the matter that you see it again and again and again. And it's a reminder. And I think you can do a lot less with a lot of the stuff that they continually draw back to, especially because there's only so much time and there's so much to cover. It's uh, kind of baffling that they keep going back to. Well, that. that's where I kind of disagree with you because at the top of this episode, we talked about like 
how sort of it's taking real life in this fantasy world and grounding it based on like actual history. And I think that the stillbirths are part of actual history. As we talked about, they didn't have modern medicine back in those ages. And I think it also does tap into the feministic sort of things surrounding childbirth. You know, immediately after Rhaenyra gives birth, she, the the queen, Alicent, uh, forces, you know, the, she wants to see her child. Rhaenyra, like Alicent, wants to see Rhaenyra's child. And because we didn't talk about this, and this is a spoiler, the person... Rhaenyra. Right, we're getting into the second half of the uh, the season yeah. now. So every all games are off now. We uh, we're gonna rip the bandaid yeah. off. Go ahead. So Rhaenyra, in order to secure her succession in the first half of the show, because it's constantly challenged by you know her now younger brother um, and Alicent's son, and the king just wants to secure sort of Rhaenyra's line, so she would be better positioned to succeed him, and and that means she has to marry, and so. So she marries, you know, uh, one of the Valerians, um, uh, basically Corliss is not basically Corliss's son, um, who I think is Lenor, Lenor Valerian. And he happens to be gay. And she herself is like, okay, I don't mind that at all. You can uh, be with who you want to be and I'll be with who I want. But, you know, like we'll be there for each other. But because she is able to be with whoever, because they're both able to be with whoever they want to be. And because Valerians, you know, have a specific sort of look to them, they're black and they have silver hair. The child Rhaenyra has, because it's not necessarily, it's not with Lenor at all, because she is having, you know, concerts of her own. Um, they turn out not to look anything like the Valerian line. They are not black and they do not have silver hair. So that is it, that is a point of contention with Alicent as well, because she's trying to prove to her husband that... Rhaenyra is siring bastards, meaning children born out of wedlock, uh, basically with Laris's brother, I think Herod, Her- yeah, Herod Strong, um, who Laris later kills along with his father. In Thrones, you have upwards of, of 20 characters who are seminal to the story's progress, and without it just don't work, right? Even these characters that show yeah. up at the very uh, edge of the season, at the end of the season, that are part of the six or seven kingdoms. All these characters are essential to the movement of the show, and yet don't get much screen time because we have to keep clipping along. Um, and again, I think that is one of the the major um, gripes on it. But it's interesting yeah, because it is, um, it's similar in that way to a show that I actually adore. And so it's interesting that I I, um, I come up on sort of this barrier because I also want to talk about another dense show that has to do with succession. Succession. How do you feel uh, this uh, compares? I find it really interesting because succession is equally dense. It is much more modern, obviously. And so I think it might just be on taste, but also the one thing that succession does that... Um, the House of the Dragon show fails at is um, pacing. It really plots along slowly and surely, whereas House of the Dragon runs up to its uh, finale in which, as we mentioned, um, we are we are in spoiler territory here. Um, the war begins, right? There's a civil war that has been brewing and finally comes to a threshold and is um, ready to be fought at the top of season two. Well, I, I'm glad that you brought succession into this conversation because i agree with you but i think like the big thing to sort of acknowledge is that house of the dragon is an adaptation where succession isn't 
you know, succession, they can dictate the pacing however they want. I think it's like harder to dictate the pacing, especially with this first season in House of the Dragon, because what we're watching is just a massive prologue to the actual conflict of the show, which is the Civil War, right? The Dance of Dragons. And I think that's sort of the insurmountable thing that the writers and the creators of this show had to contend with. Ultimately, staying true to the history that George R. R. Martin created, again, not even a book, just like a few paragraphs of history uh, and some snippets that characters mention in his actual like book series um, and somehow adapt that, you know, those various points of history that are just like points on Wikipedia, essentially. I think that's what makes it hard and that's what makes the pacing incredibly difficult because thinking about it, it's like 15 years from the start to of, of episode one to where we are now is about 15 years because obviously in the middle there's that 10 year jump and but in between that there are a few years in between each episode which because suddenly each episode has a little bit of difference in yeah, time which also is like a bit jarring because suddenly you see emily carrie has like a son allison hightower has like Aegon Targaryen, her son, and he's like two years old or three years old, and she's already pregnant with the second next Right, one. and the character dynamics have totally changed. You know, Olivia yeah, Emily is uh, much more hard, yeah, much more hard-faced yeah. and uh, totally acts differently. And this happens uh, all the time in smaller ways. Patty Constantine is actually an yeah. uh, example of how I think it was done well in the show. Yeah, because he literally... Is yeah. that you get to physically see him deteriorate. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and, but that's what I mean. I feel like the show did it really well in the sense of like, wow, they adapted it essentially like Wikipedia bullet points and made that into actual substance. And they did really cool things with Viserys, Patty Con Constantine's like character. And they also just showed like how time eroded this family in a, in a really like deep and fracturing way because essentially this family started as a very close-knit family uh, and then it just split into a very large and bloated very hostile sort of uh, family dynamic that essentially became two camps that led to the civil war Allison's side and Rhaenyra's side but again I, comp I completely agree with you where uh, like the pacing was an issue because for me, the pacing finally got really Definitely. good slash the show got really good in the second half of the season because it became far more focused on the repercussions and and it got hyper-focused at the conflict at hand, which was the succession. Itself. Yeah, I wanted to give you an opportunity before we close things out to go into detail about your favorite parts because I talked a little bit about how I actually preferred a lot of the first half. But you mentioned that you really like a lot of the second half. What particularly did you like and why did you think it worked? Well, before I get into it, I would love to hear why you love the second half. Well, so I had a, a few issues with the second half. Obviously, Olivia Cook was sort of my, um, my major person, but um, uh, nine and 10 were my favorites. Um, a lot of the six through eight, I would I, I could leave behind um, because again, a lot of table setting, a lot of stuff had to be sort of revamped. There were obviously a lot of good moments. Um, I'm sure you'll be able to cover a lot of those in a second, but um, the stuff that I really liked from the second half was when we were able to focus in a little bit. Um, one missed opportunity I thought was that um, we never really got to steep in any particularity. And actually I would love to have 
seen some of the more upstairs downstairs type of stuff where you got to see the common man because we hear about all of this stuff but we never get to see it exactly what it is that um, people think of Rhaenyra and an opportunity to have people, you know, and you really get to focus on Rhaenyra's uh, younger um, upstarts, people who are going to take on her throne eventually, her sons, um, both traveling on dragon to meet people and hear exactly that, what they think of her, what they think of the kingdom at large. And uh, similarly, that happens in um, the previous episode where you get to see Alison Hightower reckon in real time with the fact that she believes her uh, son to be the rightful heir to the throne, and yet everyone around her sort of making her question whether what she's doing is moral because her father rightfully outs, you know, in some uncertain terms <laughs> that he was planning all along to make her son the king, um, regardless of the uh, previous king's wants or desires. Um, and seeing this sort of character study, I think, was a opportunity that I'm glad the show took on. Um, in many ways, I think the show, episode by episode, writes a lot of the wrongs that a previous episode will have. If I feel like there's a little bit too much blood and gore in one episode, there tends to be a little bit less in the next episode, and so on and so on. But in general, there is a lot of the same stuff that crops up again and again, which again, I just personally take a little bit more issue with than many people. Um, I uh, actually think... Um, um, many more people probably would like it even less. Um, if you're squeamish at all, I think the show really doesn't have a lot for you. Um, and if you get past it, which I can, um, there's a lot to love in House of the Dragon. But again, I think just that it is a little bit too condensed and the um, characters aren't nearly as fleshed out. And then there's just so many of them and we focus on many of them in, in um, pretty rank and file fashion so that you never really get to emotionally tie with someone who might totally flip the table in the next three episodes. Um, to me, is a little um, jarring, and I hope in the second season that we do get more opportunities to deal with these young actors. In the books, Eamon is treated as like this bloodthirsty person, but he's not. He's, in my opinion, very similar to Damon's character, where he is, and, and in a lot of ways, he is his parallel because he's treated as like this bad boy. But in reality, you know, he is someone who is just driven by a lot of innocence and a lot of rage because we see him as a young boy who was bullied a lot by his brother and his nephews because he was the only child who wasn't able to tame a dragon. And then somehow he tames the largest and strongest dragon of them all. And he strives, he's a very ambitious person and he strives for power because he starts believing in himself. But because Aegon is, is first like his older brother and Rhaenyra is his older sister, he's very far from the line of succession for the throne. And even when that succession is in question and his brother doesn't want to be king, he is forced to literally force his brother to be king, even though he wants to be king and believes he will do a better job. Literally, the ep last episode ends by a by Aemon killing like his nephew Luke, Rhaenyra's son. But it's not necessarily him who kills him; it's his dragon. And I think there's been a lot of talk about this, like, and even I caught on to it when I was watching it. 
in that moment if you look closely at the episode like Eamon is shocked of what happens and he feels incredibly guilty and it ties back into one of the first things um Viserys says in you know the very first episode of the series when he talks to Rhaenyra there's a moment where he chooses Rhaenyra to be his heir and he is like what is the greatest illusion uh in our world and he and when Rhaenyra asks him what is it what is the greatest illusion in our world he's like that we can control dragons because they are untamable. You know, it's an illusion that we can, we Targaryens can control dragons. And it's the same thing here. The reason, like, why Aemon's dragon Vagar kills Luke and his dragon Eryx is because Eryx didn't choose, uh, didn't choose to listen to Luke and fought back against the larger Vagar. And then Vagar, being enraged. As, a, as like a beast would, attacked and killed and ate Eryx and Luke, even though Aemon told him to stop. And I think that was it. I think Aemon was just trying to be, he was just trying to scare Luke. He was definitely just trying to razz him. I actually agree with you there. Um, His uh, tirade prior to that, wherein he asked Luke for his eye due to the fact that Luke took his eye in a previous episode. He wanted an eye for an eye, and that was his, um, his, his, uh, he, he had an understanding. He said, okay, well, you know, I want, you want something from me, I want something from you. I want you to gouge out your own eye. I think that's pretty sadistic still, um, even in the time frame of the medieval ages in which this sort of punishment was much more normalized. I think it still rings pretty hollow in um, in an emotional setting, and so it's really hard to empathize with him, and I think the writers understand and acknowledge that. Yeah, but I think in a way you can empathize with him in, in certain ways, because it's it's literally like when you understand it as, as like this kid, he was a kid when he lost his eye, right? When something like that happens to you, it's a trauma. It's a trauma that you never forget, and, you, and therefore you also never forgive. And I think that was the issue, that when he, whenever he saw Luke or, you know, his his brother Jace, you know, he was constantly reminded of that moment where his eye was cut out when he was a child, you know? So in that sense, you can empathize with him. And that sadism does stem from a place of trauma. And ultimately, I think what makes me excited for season two is exploring, you know, this new trauma where he accidentally killed Luke when he didn't intend to. And I think that will humanize him in, in, her, in our eyes. Because I'll tell you right now, in the books, in the history that is presented to us, Eamon is very sadistic. He's very, very sadistic. In fact, like it is very much shown to us that he actively kills Luke on purpose that he makes the active choice to kill Luke. And the show smartly veers away from that and, f and giving it more depth. I was going to ask, what other uh, things are you excited about for season two? Well, before I get into that, I do really want to talk about episode eight because I thought it was, again, really, really amazing. And I promise I'll get through this fast because I know we have an entire freaking other section with Rings of Power. Um, but episode eight was really strong because this is where where a lot of the conflict of succession came to its head. You know, it's where Alicent and both Rhaenyra were making really, really strong moves. And Viserys was just kind of like his disease his, that has been like slowly tolling away at him over the episodes and over the season has finally put him at essentially death's door. And when Rhaenyra's like succession truly comes into question, he stands up 
and even as weak as he is walks to the throne and actively protects Rhaenyra and there is even like a beautiful moment where he, as i as i think me and jordan have mentioned at least slightly that Damon and Viserys his younger brother have been essentially rivals this entire time uh, because Damon has always seen himself as the rightful heir to Viserys's throne. There is a moment where Viserys struggles to climb up the steps to his throne because he's so weak and he drops his crown and then Damon is the one that picks it up and and effortly effortlessly like helps Viserys on the throne and then crowns him with this crown. And I really want to give credence to that because this show is filled with these really subtle and really powerful moments. Because, you know, like, as we talked about, these characters and these books that George R. R. Martin created, like, again, they don't even, they're not fully formed characters because they're essentially bullet points on a Wikipedia page, essentially, when the way they're presented. But the way the show respects these perspectives and sort of the anguish and trauma and sort of the relationships, the unspoken relationships between all these characters and the way they craft them is really touching. It's what carries this show. It's what makes them really complex relationships. Like it's very clear to see that Damon really loves his brother Viserys, even though he will never say it, which makes it really heartbreaking because Viserys in particular, the entire season only tries to make amends with Damon. He tries to constantly be like the best brother he can be. And then for Damon, that's incredibly annoying because it, it's a constant reminder as it, it, that Viserys is his king and he will never be king himself. And also, it's a, it was an amazing episode for the actor, Patty Conestein, because he gives out an amazingly crafted speech about how like, hey, I am basically dying. And all my family is here with me. Allison and her children and Rhaenyra and her children and my brother Damon are here. All my the important people in my life are here and they're all arguing and hating each other. But please, before I die, make peace with one another. Love each other because you're family. And they actually listen to him. And it's like an amazing calm before the storm moment. But then something shakes all of that up in a very insane sort of way, in a very heartbreaking sort of way. And that's what starts the Dance of Dragons. And it's so unexpected, but it's so powerful. And that's what I mean. It's, it's for all its flaws, you know, I, I uh, this is how I'll round this out. Like in the beginning, when I watched this show, I was so worried that it was never going to escape the Game of Thrones shadow. Because at the very beginning, I felt like it was trying to imitate Game of Thrones. But as the show went on, I grew to really respect its subtlety and its depth uh, and its true like character exploration. Where Game of Thrones explored its characters in a really unique way it always was far more interested in exploring like the world than the cruel world game of thrones was in but house of the dragon is far more interested in digging deep into the characters that inhabit this world i'm not saying game of thrones is less and house of the dragon is better I'm saying they're just both very different and they focus on very different things. House of the Dragon feels more focused as the season goes on because the only thing that kept it unfocused was the time jumps. And what I'm so excited about in regards to season two is that there will be no more time jumps. 
because I know what's going to happen. There's finally going to be some focused storytelling and we might be get some of the things that I'm looking for, which is something I actually might tune in for. Um, ultimately, I think House of the Dragon for me is fairly middling. It is, as you mentioned, mechanically extremely sound, um, but also the tone is dire and serious. So there's all of that in all at once. Uh, all of the characters have a distinct point of view and the issues uh, that permeate every element, um, the matter of succession into the Targaryen dynasty all tie into it. Uh, because of this, it does mean that there is some fallout. Uh, it doesn't explore its world fully, um, but it hits its bullseye dead in the middle. So in terms of meeting it on its own turf, as I mentioned, it succeeds. Uh, but I think I would have enjoyed it a little bit more if they stretched the material out to two seasons or even three. That said, I think it's a fine show and I think it will get better yeah, with more I think seasons. George R. R. Martin has stated outright that he expects it to be four seasons. Uh, that, that's what it will likely take to respect like the history that he constructed, which makes sense. I, I myself Absolutely was like, true. yeah. Like before it even came out, it was like, it will take four to five seasons. So we're going to take a quick pause, listen to some music, and then we are going to come back and talk Lord of the Rings. Stay tuned, everyone. All right, so let's talk uh, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. So now all eight episodes are currently streaming on Amazon Prime, if you need a reminder, we are going to be talking spoilers in this section as well as the last section, as I'm sure you know. So, Niv, uh, tell me about uh, how you felt like this compared to House of the Dragon. Um, did you find it um, more intricate, less intricate, um, more enriching, less enriching? What was your, your takeaway? I definitely thought it was more intricate, and I think it's because... Um... I I'm not gonna lie. I'm I enjoyed House of the Dragon way more than I did Lord of the Rings: Rings of Power, and the only reason I I enjoyed it m much more is because I felt as if this show had a higher barrier of entry than House of the Dragon did. Because I could make the argument that you don't need to watch Game of Thrones in order to to watch and understand House of the Dragon. But as I was watching Lord of the Rings rings of power i felt like not only did i have to watch the lord of the rings trilogy by peter jackson and the hobbit trilogy by peter jackson i had to watch the extended cuts just to get have a confident understanding of what i was watching and even that is problematic to say because you know when you hypothesize something like that the issue is that the the movies focus on a totally different age than the show does because the movies focus on the third age in the lord of the rings mythos whereas this show focuses on a completely different era with com almost completely different characters other than like the elves we know of the elves who live for a very long time like galadriel and elrond but everything else feels so removed from our understanding available from the media that's available to us, not the books, but the media, that it felt like every single time I was watching, because it was so intricate and because it was so high fantasy compared to, to the groundedness of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, I felt completely lost sometimes or overwhelmed, I think would be even a more appropriate word to use. Yeah, the show is really kind of an interesting ordeal, right? 
So uh, Rings of Power was not actually given to Amazon initially. Um, it was shopped around quite a lot. And the Tolkien estate, the big idea was to take a lot of the appendices of the original Lord of the Rings and extend it out. So realistically, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is fairly thin. Um, it also is something that is a little bit contentious as a program because even to those who do understand a lot of this stuff, there are some things that are not quite to the source material. One of the big things is that it condenses about a thousand years of story. You mentioned it takes place in the Second Age. And all of that history ends up kind of getting squished into just a few seasons of TV. And realistically, it will take place kind of nebulously within maybe a few years time. Because it being a TV show, it's harder for that kind of stuff to really get nailed in i mean we see it in house of the dragon and i um already mentioned to you that it was kind of one of the things that i found to be a little um contentious about the show a little experimental yeah, yeah but that's the thing you hit the nail on the head because house of the dragon also uses appendices essentially or like as i said like wikipedia paragraphs of of history that is only mentioned in it, the song of ice and fire series or books um, that George R. R. Martin created. And it's the same thing here. Tolkien didn't create, you know, I mean, he created the Samalir, Sam, how do you pronounce it? The Cimmerillion. Above that, you know, he didn't create anything that was really in depth. He didn't create a trilogy set in the second age um, that the show is like drawing from. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel both these shows did the same thing. They took out essentially little, a little historical or, you know, like lore found in these books and the main series books and then expanded them insanely to create TV shows. But I feel that House of the Dragon is more successful because it, it grounds it and yeah. it is able to expand it. In, in ways that don't feel overwhelming. And the lore doesn't feel just like lore. It feels like a story, which I think I would agree that the Rings of Power often is weighted down by its conceit. Um, so a little bit more of background. As I mentioned, it was shopped around quite a bit by the Tolkien estate. Um, several other streaming services, including Netflix, were considering this show. Um, but firstly, the starting price to buying the rights was $200 million. So that's a staggering amount. Most services have very little um, interest in paying that much for a title. For reference, Apple TV was unwilling several years ago to pay that amount for a prime IP movie, No Time to Die, which was three times that number, but completely finished. A fully done James Bond film, which is, again, a kind of prime IP. So obviously, Amazon and Apple are comparable in the way that they both share the market of streaming, but not really in the same way that Netflix does. They're there to bolster a brand and so maybe more willing to take risky decisions like fund a high cost fantasy show. I mean, in Apple's case, they have done quite a few of sci-fi shows, stuff that takes place on the moon, stuff that is really high budget in the same way that Rings of Power is, but not to the scale of Rings of Power. They ended up spending over a billion dollars on this first season. That said, a lot of that cost, I think, will be circumvented with the second season, which is already slated to begin 
and probably a third season because they've really sunk a lot of cost in this show. And it's one of those titles that they're hoping to draw more and more attention on as time goes on. You mentioned that it is a little inaccessible. That actually might be a high point in Amazon's mind because the inaccessibility means that you have to sort of re-digest this show again and again and again and sort of like get into the lore in a way that maybe no TV show has ever done. I agree. I think that it is ambitious. And because of that ambition has some real lasting power, has some actual merit. Um, Another thing I have to mention, the second reason that this show ended up in Amazon's hands is because Jeff Bezos himself was interested in the acquisition. He almost never deals on the streaming side of Amazon, but he worked personally alongside Prime Video to secure the deal. So that is the a little bit of the background. Are there any acting portrayals you found to be noteworthy in the Rings of Power? Oh, definitely. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Morfeed Clark, who plays Galadriel, who plays like the lead. She is able to emulate Kate Blanchett so well that there were times. You think so? I think so. Absolutely. I, I. It looked like she was a young Kate Blanchett, and she she even like acted like a young Kate. Blanchett, which I really, really... That's high praise. Yeah, I thought she did a wonderful job, and she carries so much of this show. Um, I also want to give props to um, what's his name? Uh, Robert Arameo, who plays Elrond. Um, he also uh, was in Game of Thrones. He played like... Uh, he was young Ned yeah, Stark. He was, yeah, he yeah. was... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he was one of my favorites as well. I think he was one of the highlights of the show at large. Uh, the writing for him, I think, was also a little um, higher gauge than for um, Mor- Morfed, I believe is the name. I don't have a uh, pronunciation on it. She's a Swedish born um girl uh her main credit is saint maud which was an a24 horror movie from a couple of years ago you didn't see saint maud did you i haven't i heard of it and i knew she was in it and yeah that's interesting that yeah. she was born in sweden but she's also welsh um which you know i guess it helped her secure the role since um elves are based off of like welsh culture and well welsh society That's actually probably a major highlight point. One of the things that the show does get accurately down to a T is pronunciation, which I really appreciate. That's something that uh, Jackson was a little bit more lackadaisical on. The pronunciation of Elvish is kind of a a chewier, particular sensibility. It's something that I think this Anglic um, mix that Morphet has really translates well to the interests that Tolkien had. A little bit of background on The Lord of the Rings as a conceit if you don't know is that Tolkien was an academic the um, writer of Lord of the Rings, you know, elementary school stuff. Um, In the mid 50s, he wrote this series of books to bolster a language, which was his initial idea was he had this language of Elvish that he was working on as what we call an art lang, which is a manufactured language come up by usually one person that is not meant really for usage. Uh, Conlang is a more general term. That's something like Esperanto which is uh, short for constructed language. If you don't know Esperanto, that's something you might just have to Google. The language, though, was the main starting point. And he had already written a book, The Hobbit, which was more of a children's book. And he decided to take 
a lot of the ideas of the children's book that he wrote and expand it out. And that was the way that he ended up writing The Lord of the Rings and had, of course, a lot of other material that he didn't include. Some of it is in his book, The Cimmerillion. Some of it is in other books that his son, Christopher Tolkien, published after his death. And all of it is stuff that could possibly be in the future of the story. But the Tolkien estate really, including Christopher, has a pretty hard stance and is very particular about the way in which he utilizes this material. And so he's not going to let them just use all of the Middle Earth history, all of the Cimmerillion, all of the appendices. He started with the appendices and he's like 200 million to produce it. And surprisingly, Amazon said yes. And so here we are with an eight episode series, all of which takes place around this general area, but does kind of start to expand into other areas of the map that we don't really recognize, which is kind of a hard pill to swallow for these first two episodes. You see a lot of new areas. You meet a whole lot of new characters, not all of which coalesce within the eight episodes that season one has. So consequently... I think there is a lot of variability, you know, in terms of what plots people are going to connect to, what plots people aren't going to connect to. I learned my love of Lord of the Rings from my mother, who has read the books. She loves this series. But I think we both probably are going to have a little bit of different opinions on what she thinks are the best. You know, she really likes the Harfoot plotline. Um... I myself, as we'll talk about in a moment, really my number one is the Misty Mountains plot and uh, the Forge. And that's, I think, just kind of the way things go. So um, what's your ratio, Niv? Um, things that you really got and understood and connected to versus things that maybe you were less secure on? Well, it's interesting because um, as you talked about, like things we relate to, things we don't. I found it really interesting that I mentioned, you know, Elrond and Galadriel as characters and actors that I resonated with because they're the characters I knew of the most. Everybody else felt new to me, so they felt like a a safe a safe space for me and as as I was watching this show. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was just kind you of were like, like please, yeah. please give me Galadriel again. Yeah. At least I know. At least I know. She might not even have that little mirror of her that's the only thing we really get in the um, in the uh, movies yeah. is and and in the source material in the books is Gladriel shows up and she kind of tells she gives a little warning to Frodo but it, she's not in all of that much of the movies she's no. just kind of she's a, a stop along the way yeah but it's she's a, a respite for some of the drama that's happening yeah but it's Kate Blanchett so it's immediately iconic um, speaking of which tar tar yeah. maybe future episode <laughs> maybe future episode indeed but yeah you know like so i i enjoyed elrond's relationship with durin i thought that was, that bromance was really cool i loved a uh, galadriel's like quest for vengeance even though like i wish i could understand her hatred more um because i found it to be a little bit nonsensical in the sense that like She's she is so focused on the fact that her brother died. Well, you don't really see it. And now that I'm kind of talking about this, I want to talk about like one of my main gripes with the show is that it jumps a whole age. Like it starts us off before the first age, you know, like with the Morgoth 
plot and then it just completely jumps after he was defeated in the in the span of maybe five minutes and it drove me insane so the first episode gives us almost no background the way that the movie does and instead just kind of like lets us dive in i think it would be very smart i agree that the show took a little bit more time in its first and second episode to show instead of tell. There is a lot of problems in kind of this like rudimentary writing sense. The the language, the script is very poetic. And in some way, I think that it succeeds more on the high level storytelling elements, the more epic storytelling elements than the lower level. But it's almost like they threw the textbook out the window and said, we're not making a show like that. We're making a show that feels like a novel. And so they said, we don't need Save the Cat. We don't need XYZ. We are going to do this. And then in the edit room realized, wow, I have no clue how we're going to put this together in a way that makes a remote amount of sense and did the best with what they had. But consequently, there's a little bit of disconnect. And that little bit of disconnect for me, I think actually pretty much stayed consistent throughout the show. The main thing is that maybe for you, you were able to kind of settle in a little bit with these characters and at least get a mild sense of who Galadriel was. And also, we don't really talk that much about her brother, which is another issue that you touched on, which is the fact that we don't see her brother. We don't know her brother. We don't get a us an up style montage where we see her and her brother rollick around the forests of Numenor. She just walks into Numenor and says, I'm I want to take revenge. So it's it's a little um you know, I think that they, they would have done well to watch Kill Bill before making this movie. Give, give us some black and white flashbacks. Yeah, I mean, we got two two portrayals of him, right? An actual memory of him in the beginning that sets the stage. And then, like, a manipulated memory of him at the but very But the manipulated end. memory, I would argue, is doing a different thing in the plot than Absolutely. tug at our heartstrings. In some ways, it's just a, and it's a great moment. We'll get to that shortly. But the um, manipulated memory doesn't play off of of uh, any actual formulation. We don't know him as a character. We don't really get any details on what made him a great brother. Well, as you just said, like it makes it harder to care about Galadriel's motivations because they seem almost, um, you know, aimless. Like, because obviously she wants to take revenge and and she very clearly says who she wants to take revenge against. But we don't understand, like, why specifically that character um, as because he wasn't even the leader of, you know, that war. The leader of that war was Morgoth. And from our quick understanding that they give us is that Morgoth was defeated and killed. Um, and and so this other, she's so worried that this other character will take the reins, but she doesn't even know if this other character exists. And we don't even know. If he's even alive. And everyone around her says, no, he's not alive. He's, and I've heard um, some critics who I, um, I'll discredit a little bit say that it's kind of classic Hollywood to be doing this. These are the kind of people that are um, mostly um, eschewing episode seven of Star Wars in, due to the fact that they thought that Ray was quote unquote a Mary Sue. They say, you know, this is a gender based issue because all of the men of Lord of the Rings say, no, no, the men of Numenor, I suppose. Uh, say no, no, no. 
uh, Sauron's gone. There's no way. And Galadriel says, no, he's still there. I know it. And finds a crew and, you know, does it herself. A one woman show. Although, of course, it really isn't a one woman no, show. No. And in fact, it's not even really a two person show. There's many people, some of which I, I found to be completely auxiliary. But nonetheless, these characters are still there. So I wanted to um, dive in a little bit on um, my rank list. So I've got all of these arcs kind of pulled up and I've tiered them into A grade, B grade, and C grade because this is, I think, the best way to really approach them. Notice I don't give an F tier. I think that all of them have their merit and I think all of them could have been executed properly. It's just that some of them are, you know, things that really work for me. Some of them are things that I would need a little bit of um, massaging. And some of them I think need to be completely reanalyzed as a mechanical device within the show at large, because they just kind of need to be spun off in their own show. Some of them just don't really tonally all gel in the same eight hours of TV. In some ways, this should be 24 episodes and each plot should have their own kind of like their own thing it should be like a season four of arrested development where all of these characters get to do their own stuff before cutting away to a different storyline you really need to sit in these worlds in order for them to feel more accomplished that's not what the showrunners have done so galadriel specifically just going to run through some of the plot before getting into it because I don't know exactly how long it's been since all of y'all have seen this. This show has, since we have um, recorded and published this podcast, it's been a couple of weeks. So good to remember. So, of course, she lost her brother fighting Sauron and swears to honor her brother's legacy and get revenge. She abandons her troops. She has a group of people in an ice cave following a troll. Um, and eventually she takes her troops out of the cave um, and abandons them to find Sauron, jumping off a ship, comes on onto a raft and jumps on meeting a man, Halibrand. I should spe specify man is the race. Um, we humans are men in the world of Tolkien and his compatriots. So there's Halibrand, there's Galadriel, and there's a third character who I have somewhere on this list. I don't really remember her name. She's also in the race of men. Um, we'll get to her later. They meet up with Ellen Deal, who is uh, going to take them on to the island of uh, Numenor. And uh, Numenor, wait a second, do I have that right? Numenor is the Island of Men. I um, previously called the um, the Isle of uh, Elves Numenor, but I think that's something else. I don't remember what it is. I'll have to find it later. Um, I don't have the map in front of me, and there's a lot of different places. So I apologize for that. Any Tolkien fans um, listening to this podcast, you might want to go to a more specialized podcast for that. Um, they meet up with uh, Ellen Deal, who takes them both to the Island of Numenor, right? So on Numenor, Halibrand reveals himself to be the lost king of the Southlands. We learn more about that a little bit later, and glad Adriel learns of a possible danger to the Southlands. So they both decide to go to the Southlands and arguably find Sauron and save that area. Episode four and five, that was all in the first three episodes. Um, four and five are, to me, mostly filler. Gladriel appears in those episodes, but there's almost no real plot that, that goes back into the larger piece. I think this is, again, kind of a problem in the edit is that they filmed a lot of stuff, they kept a lot of the stuff, and it's pretty auxiliary. Gladriel assists in the ba Battle of uh, Osterlith, which is, or Oster, 
Osterith. Osterith. Um, Osterith. But it's already too late. Uh, more on that battle later. Um, I'll figure out how to pronounce it. The orcs destroy the realm, destroy the Southlands, and bring upon the birth of Mordor. How did you feel about that particular situation? Well, before we get into that, the elven continent that they leave is Valinor. Um, Valinor. Welcome. Thank you for um, that. I felt good about that. Like, I, my favorite, if I... I know we talked about what my ranks were and I didn't really give an answer, but my favorite was the main plot, uh, the A plot, which was, you know, Galadriel's story because it, it felt like it was actually pushing towards something and something I, I understood. And I felt like a lot of the other plot lines were at least like migrating very slowly to that storyline as well. Um, so the creation of Mordor actually felt like a really good moment because you know, it was like the dark moment of this story, the dark before the light, before uh, like good triumphs again. But it, but it, it just felt good because it, it it connected to something I understood, which was you know the Lord the movies, uh, the Lord of the Rings, and it talked about how this you know once fertile and beautiful land was made dead and and destitute and evil and i thought that that particular sort of like exploration of the mythology was just really awesome to look at yeah so i half agree i would say that it is um posited to be the a plot and in general i think that it is overvalued at the season at large i think that they have edited it in such a way that it is the driving engine and they could have reworked it so that um some other stuff again this is all pretty personal because I like certain things, and so when I say you should re-edit it so that the thing I like the best is going to be on top, that is, I acknowledge, complete hubris and full ego. So um, that said, she's moving around Middle-earth in kind of a travelogue-style fashion. Would you agree that it's kind of... Oh, absolutely. But all characters, all characters move in like an aimless, aimless sort in some of, of this. Thing. There is a little bit of aimlessness, but I think it's accentuated from the fact that she goes to so many places. And that also does support the fact that she does feel like sort of the engine in some ways because yeah. of that. So obviously that's not wrong for a character to do. She's interested in finding Sauron. So her travel reflects her aimlessness. That aimlessness, I think, could be a little bit more psychological for my taste, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a mechanically wrong thing. Obviously, it's very subjective. This is why it's on my B-grade tier list. Some of the stuff that we'll talk about later is a little bit more objectively... Um, undercooked so the narrative arc i think ultimately is um pretty agnostic to the aimless stuff there's um a little bit of a disconnect she has an internal motivation for revenge and that's always prioritized uh, over the way that this drive has made an impact on her life so the show stagnates on her uh, her act of revenge there are some really wonderful moments there are some very personal moments uh, one particularity was on the isle of man numenor but beyond that there's also just a lot of uh, drawn out character moments that don't feature gladriel as and because of that, she doesn't get all that much time to to grow and change and develop. And a lot of the really cool stuff that you touched on, I felt was kind of rushed, particularly the build of uh, Mordor just kind of happened out of nowhere. And really, yeah. I felt like the true pathos came not in the moment that Mordor began, but in the 
episode following in which you get to see these people wandering around the mist of what was, which is, I think, the cool moment in the show. But the actual moment when everything launched up, you're kind of looking around like, is is this happening now? Is this because we, we really don't know the rules of this world? We were never told the rules. And so it... um to me felt a little um a little undervalued the writers didn't give the proper emotionality that i felt like it deserved um so obviously my fix would be to cut her character down um just enough to let other people shine a little bit better there are other parts of the show that create um more drama in my eyes than the gladriel's um currently kind of vacant quest for revenge so if you distill that vacancy and if you create sort of more of a rot and give her motivation more of a clear sort of um starting point knowing where you're going i think that it would have had a lot more weight again Going back to a lot of the stuff that I felt like was um, undervalued, the Man of a Thousand Faces thing, Gladriel didn't really hit a lot of these cinch points that you're looking for when you're making a show of this scale. And so it's very, very easy to get lost in the weeds. Absolutely. And that's where I agree with you. I think that, you know, her characterization was rushed. There were, were moments where she did feel very one dimensional and purely because her motivation felt like really one dimensional, right? It didn't allow her room to actually grow, but there were certain moments in particular, like her relationship with Halbrand, which is a very unique sort of relationship, which was very appealing. It's what made, you know, like the drama of her story really pop. And as you said, you know, like the, the explosion of Mordor and the aftermath of that is really interesting. Not only what it does to the world, but how it relates to the characters at large who are immediately like impacted by it. You know, like I, I agree with you that her relationship with Halbrand is, is very interesting because it actually allows her more room to grow because it's such a unique relationship. Right. But even that wasn't pushed far enough, but the thing that makes Galadriel still uh, one of the better characters of the show, even if she's pretty one dimensional is because her, motivation her one-dimensional motivation is what pushes so much of the story right and as you said like uh she brings us to to the creation of mordor essentially like even though there are other characters inhabiting that space in in sort of a conflict she's the one that that sort of brings everyone to this conflict and and you're right like even though it was interesting that you know, the explosion of Mordor happened. It was far more interesting to see the characters who were directly there, directly impacted by it. But I will also say that, you know, it felt like a breath of fresh air when the Mordor thing happened because it felt like something was actually finally happening in the show. Like some sort of like... Um, Drama you know, and escalation... And things that you expect in a epic scale like this. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In a normal story. Not just an epic scale, just a normal story. I mean, semantics on that. You can really say, well, this is, you know, whatever. But, you know, I would say that uh, an epic plays on a certain a certain type of thing and when you don't have these kind of like moments of of really high drama 
which there was one major one in the sixth episode and then culminates in the birth of Mordor, which is this big battle, as I mentioned. But that's but that's what I mean. Like in House of the Dragon, each episode had some sort of escalation where whether it be small or big. But in most of, you know, Rings of Power, there wasn't really escalations. You know, they just kind of like kept it at the same level. You kind of walk around gazing at how beautiful everything is, which I think is a thing we should note before continuing on. I We're jumping straight to the B scale. Eventually, I am going to get to my um, A scale and I'll talk about the things I love about this show, which I think are ample. But one of the things I want to be able to mention since we're talking about this right now is how wonderfully beautiful some of the sets are. I mean, they filmed this in a terrific location. The look of all of these different places are well a little um not quite as unique as some other stuff i was seeing have you been keeping up with the star wars show and or no i have not and only because like we've been busy (laughs) i'll say that you'll you'll get to it i'm sure yeah you're a busy guy um but the star wars show and or is going on right now and was going at the same time as uh lord of the rings house of the dragon so i was able to compare it and um between all three of these high concept shows these re really world-built shows. It's by far the most diverse in what the things look like, you know, compared to the previous Star Wars show. It's miles above it. But um, certainly uh, above Lord of the Rings as well, which is still, I would agree, um, to most critics, equally beautiful. Um, although Lord of the Rings is also a great deal more expensive. But um, pretty much the dead opposite, which is, I think, most visually distinct up to a certain point when, of course, it gets mildly folded in, but is still ultimately kind of auxiliary to the plot, which I'll get to in a second, um, the Harfoots. So Harfoots are uh, similar to... Ancestors or descendants? They're um, they're well-known descendants. (laughs) Very good. The Harfoots are nomads, which rely heavily on uh, gathering produce to receive nutrition, and they travel in packs. Um, Harfoots remain in good-natured communities. The uh, young Harfoots, um, two of these characters, they discover a giant in a meteor. Um, These characters are uh, Nori and Poppy. So Nori and Poppy are the uh, two Harfoots. They are kind of similar to Frodo and Sam from The Lord of the Rings. They have a similar relationship to the giant in these early episodes, I would say akin to Gollum uh, in the way that they have a lot of love for him, despite the fact that there is kind of this pressure externally to maybe not be so friendly, but it's, you know, in their nature and they want to show this person that they truly can be good. Obviously, as the uh, show goes on, this diverges a little bit from the Gollum plot. I'll get to that in a second. Um, So they discover that this giant uh, carries these magical properties. Um, They credit this giant as the stranger by the way so if you're looking through the credits that's who that is um though his magic at first seems destructive he always manages to uh, succeed in the craft that he goes on an example is the community once they find out about this giant which they do eventually um at first they hide it from him then they bring him on uh, hijinks ensue and the community wants him to help them because there's a big problem obviously the uh the growth of mordor 
affects this community. And so he brings life back to their garden that they are currently staying at. They're wandering around as they do every year. And the giant makes a wonderful little shire. Maybe this is going to come into play later on. And he allows for growth to happen um, by this little corner of the forest that these people are staying at. Anyway, so talking a lot about that particular moment, but it is an example of his magic. It destroys and then growth happens sort of like i mean in in nature a forest fire will call everything down and then bring back more light in the penultimate episode the harfoots discover a trio of evil magical beings we're not really sure who these people are there's a lot of kind of unknowns um i would stop short to say they're mystery boxes because they're not really being shown in the way that the uh, classic jj abrams mystery box is which i'll continue that comparison maybe in a second um but these uh, evil magical beings are claiming to be servants of Sauron, and they've come to retrieve the giant because they believe it to be him. So the giant, having been told that he was good by the Harfoot girl and having been um, psychologically nurtured by the Harfoots, decided, decides to say no to the evil trio. They de- he defeats them ultimately and reveals in the very last moments that he is not, in fact, Sauron at all. So this is, uh, as I mentioned, spoiler for the very final episode. He is Gandalf the Grey, which is the uh, implication. So the Harfoots, I think, was a joyous community to watch. I would gladly take a show with them alone. Unfortunately, there is very little plot to be found towards Galadriel. It's complete polar opposites to the message of, you know, each peer. Furthermore, none of the Harfoot drama nor the giant has anything to do with the elves, and that is the majority part of the show. It's also, I think, the ethos of what Tolkien was after with the Lord of the Rings in general. So if the Rings of Power needs its fat trimmed, I think the Harfoots remain at the fattiest edge. But at the end of the day, I found these characters to be charming and entertaining, so it's hard for me to really um, line up that um, their mechanical superfluity is not without its merits towards the larger whole. It uh, increased my enjoyment. So, you know, there are always two sides to these kinds of things. I thought the same, honestly. I I enjoyed them too. At first I didn't. I thought they were really annoying, but only because I kept comparing them to everything else going on it felt like distraction exactly um so but as soon as it clicked it clicked for me that the stranger was gandalf i think like by episode five um when yeah, did it so... click that um sauron was um halibrand for uh, you oh. <laughs> we immediately spoiled that one um um <laughs> i mean that one was spoiled for me the halibrand one like I accidentally when I when I was getting ready to watch the show again, like I was because uh, I made that big move um, and I took a pause on our work. Um, but, you know, I, I looked it up. I, I didn't look up the information, but it just popped up in my face because it was like, I think, two weeks after the finale happened. So it was still somewhat on the news of like, hey, let's talk about this character, you know, without censoring his name. And you got it spoiled for you? Yeah, pretty much. At first, I didn't get it. But then when I was watching, I was like, oh, I get it. That actually happened to me, too. Somebody kind of made a loose reference to Sauron having been a misdirect. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's funny. And then I thought about it for maybe two and a half seconds. And I was like, 
well, if there was a twist to be had, yeah. <laughs> I had a suspicion early on. And so it being even mentioned, I think I was like, okay, yeah. If there is a uh, one character on this show who is uh, an ambitious, you know, he's, he is who he is. And he, you know, causes a little bit of mischief on the Island of man. And so kind of, you get a sense it's not a it's not a big it's it's an awesome reveal once it happens but it's not like you know it totally re rewired my mind in a way that uh earlier amazon's earlier show which we didn't talk about on the podcast but has a wonderful twist um called outer range that one completely kind of throws you off just because it's um i think really just beautifully told and um mechanically oriented and i can't help but wonder if maybe the people in amazon looked at that and said wow that's cool can you do some of that maybe but <laughs> and the writers were like sure sure but it was it. well built like there i think out of everything here it actually connected to the lore really well you know just like the the, the small breadcrumbs the fact that hellbrand throughout the show really wants to become a blacksmith and and like he goes ridiculous lengths to get like certification to become a blacksmith on Numenor and to learn how to do yeah, it. Yeah, right. And you mentioned that once he so he obviously goes to the uh, Misty Mountains and helps to forge these rings of power. And uh, that's when Gladriel has her moment of Wah! and you see him, as you kind of hinted at earlier, he becomes the brother and he is trying to twist Gladriel's mind. And once that moment happened, it was totally engrossing. I think that's one of the big takeaways from the Rings of Power is you see kind of these little moments when you're like, these guys really know what they're doing. Um, certain terms of phrases in the Elvish world, which I'll get to in a second, too. Um, these guys really have a sense of what they're making. It's just that sometimes you get a little overly ambitious. You know, when you're in the sandbox, you're like, I want to play with everything. I want everything to be in here all at once. And I think that calling was probably probably necessary but wow moments like that i'm like season two season i mean two. there was one phrase that i really loved like i think i think it was in that last episode where he talks to callum brimbor and uh he's like uh he's giving him advice on how to make the rings and callum brimbor is like oh uh thank you thank you for for your help and then he's like don't call it help instead call it a gift and I thought that that was such a wonderful connection to a part of the Lord that I do know, because Sauron is like the way he gave, you know, the people he ended up controlling the rings is by gifting it to them. He even refers to them as gifts. And I thought that that was like such a wonderful little moment. Um, but that's what I mean. It's 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 it, like we talked about it when we talked about House of the Dragon a while ago, that the best parts just of the show is, ago, is when they took out. Yeah, just a second ago. Um, when they took out, you know, like the information, that lore that's found in the books and were able to give it their own spin that felt really organic and really grounded into something, into the drama of, of the storytelling. And when Lord of the Rings did that too, it felt really good. I just feel annoyed that it didn't do it nearly enough or nearly as much as House of the Dragon did, which is why it's so easy to compare and contrast them and their contrast 
is so good. And with the Lord of the Rings and the House of the Dragon, both of these shows have very similar aims, have very similar scopes. And so you really do get to, in a unique way, play apples and oranges with stuff that normally you really can't, you know? And so that's cool. Or, you know, play the game of oranges and oranges. I want to move to a little bit of a happier moment because you already touched on it, which is my absolute favorite, the um, stuff with the elves, uh, particularly Elrond and Celebrimbor, and the dwarves, in particular, Durin and his father. So in Linden, the area um, that the elvish plot begins in, uh, Elrond is assigned to assist a legendary elven smith. That's Calibrimbor. As I think you've already pretty much mentioned, if people aren't familiar with this stuff, it's uh, all really in the appendices. Um, I understand, Niv, that you have a family member who likes Lord of the Rings as well, and so can, you can kind of relate in that way. I similar do. Um, so he goes to Prince Durin, a dwarf, for his assistance in the matter of bringing a new forge to life. Durin, after having some of the resentment, um, and he airs it about Elrond's absence, uh, he agrees to help. I think that was actually one of my favorite kind of like moments of mechanical stuff that happens in the show. I think, feel like that's stuff that really clicked. Um, they have sort of a disagreement about the way in which... Oh, there's a cat out the window. Um, they agree uh, about, or they have a disagreement about what exactly was missed because Doran is, is really, really, really angry that his friend left him for so long, 30 years, I think, you know, he says, I, you missed the birth of my children. And Elrond has to reevaluate and say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And it's really just this human kind moment. So in this new collaboration, uh, Elrond discovers that Durin has been secretly mining for Mithril. So this is kind of a fun moment because Durin then in turn becomes sort of the shady one. And, you know, you see that there's a little bit underneath. Um, and furthermore, with his father, who really does not trust elves, and uh, all of the while they're assisting with uh, Celebrimbor's forge in Eregion, which ends up being the birthplace of the Rings of Power, the Tatilier, um stuff. So uh, my favorite parts of the show, I think, are um, a little bit less spoiler heavy, right? So um, we've already gotten into a lot of that stuff. But um, the story with Celebrimbor, the dwarves and the elves, absolutely perfect. They tie into the themes of the narrative so neatly and result in some uh, really fun political ratatat that feels both weighty and homegrown. It's the perfect mix of old and new. And I think they would be wise to keep something that feels so right as an addition to the previous two trilogies in their prop pocket for this new season. Um, you mentioned that you really felt like you had to dive into those trilogies, but um, this is kind of a moment where it lives on its own. It doesn't really rely quite as heavily. Um, it relies a little bit on... Um, um, the Hobbit, but I feel like the Hobbit in turn is actually made more interesting by the forge at the Misty Mountains um, and uh, eventually Eregion. What did you think about um, Elrond and Durin, their friendship? I think I think what the show did really well was coupling. Like uh, each each uh, each sort of storyline had like a, uh, a main couple, and the main couple was always really strong. Even even the weaker ones were really strong. Galadriel and Hal Halbrand, um, you know, Durin and Elrond, the you know the Harfoot and Gandalf, and then you know the woman and the elf in the fourth storyline that we'll get to. All of which were great. So you know, like 
the reason why I also really enjoyed this re- this storyline compared to the other ones be- was because it was just really simple. It was just a dude, uh, an elven dude and his dwarf best friend, you know, uh, trying trying to self- save the elves with this uh, magical ore. You know, it didn't it didn't have super high fantastical things like there, there wasn't like insane talk about dwar- dwarven culture or elven culture, or, you know, like Sauron and Morgoth and, you know, like the evil of man or or the Harfoot's nomad, all of which were cool, you know, but the problem is it was overstuffed. It was just really, and this storyline wasn't overstuffed at all. It was just given to us as it was, which is a dude feels betrayed by his friend for not seeing him for so many years. And you see the politics still. The father comes in and the politics between elves and dwarves becomes a little bit more tangible and more um, ready to grapple with. But that's based in characters. But it's still simple. And, you know, you talked about this earlier, too, the idea that like certain parts of the show would have felt better if they stood on their own. And this makes me think once again about like not House of the Dragon, but Game of Thrones, how, you know, we started out in that show with, you know, it's a show that also focuses on a bunch of different storylines and a a bunch of different locations and a bunch of different characters. But the thing that united that first season that really kept our attention at it, like, at its peak with that show was the fact that we started off with like a focal point, which was the Starks and their family, the children and the children being separated and the children being like our sort of point of view of, of the story at large or the independent storylines are, were happening all over this world along with Daenerys Targaryen, which, you know, was another character we quickly resonated with. But with this, you know, there wasn't, you know, the Starks. We didn't have like an emotional attachment with anyone. We had to grow emotional attachments with a lot of these characters. And I feel like the clearest relationship that we did grow an emotional attachment to, at least I did when I was watching this show, totally. was Elrond. Absolutely. And Do you feel like maybe um, that was a missed opportunity that maybe you could have had if the writers were a little bit more intentional about how they were blocking these episodes out, that um, Gladriel and Elrond could have acted as kind of mirror images, considering they are two of the major characters from Lord of the Rings, and they also have kind of, they both have corruption arcs, but in very different ways, right? And they both have, you know, obviously a connection to um, uh, Halibrand, but not really, um, the corruption arc with Elrond is greed it's all about uh the value of this or mithril that they found kind of naturally while digging through and and creating this forge and um so that i think is is kind of the main disconnect is that there isn't really a parallel drawn between these two characters and i think that's something that just required a little bit of massaging required some intentionality and um i didn't i didn't see much well unfortunately the really tough pill to swallow is that there is like elements of that there of their contrast and their friendship they even say like oh you're my oldest and closest friend but we see their friendship in that beginning that first episode for like five minutes before elrond essentially betrays her and tells her hey the king told me that we have to exile you because you become sort of a rebel i agree with him it's for your it's for your own good see ya bye i'll never and then beyond that 
their their friendship isn't really like you don't see you don't see them them as equals ever really no. right ever 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 so it's confusing and so i think that's that's where i'm yeah exactly confusing ultimately kind of confusing another a grade um before i move to a little bit of a different section which we haven't touched on much at all and kind of i think for a particular reason i haven't heard a whole lot of reviewers get really into this um the mother storyline i'll talk about in a second it takes up most of this section of the rings of power but the temptation of the young boy theo I think is so brilliant. The parts that just focus on Theo, I think are perfect for TV. And it exemplifies that core theme, which is the corruption arc, the stuff that that you find in the peripheral, fear and greed and insert another seven deadly sin. Um, He shares a new perspective. He um, gives something new to Tolkien's rich well of theme for the Lord of the Rings saga, beginning with The Hobbit. And it's uh, from innocence. It's ultimately like a corruption of innocence, which is something that I think is a thing that a lot of people can relate to. It's something very broad, but it's also, I mean, Theo would have made a great point of view character. Um, It's uh, something that I think is also essential to the build of Mordor, right? Because he finds a sword again. This is all in the uh, all in the show, but it's it's getting pretty much through to the end. Um, the sword is taken from where they previously started. I'm not going to get into mapping again, um, but they they go from where they previously started onto the Southlands. Um, and once they travel to the Southlands, there's this big battle, and this sword is taken from him, and they create Mordor um, with it. Um, the they being Adar and the orcs, which are kind of the big baddie for this season. Um, and so he gets kind of a traditional plot in that way. He is carrying what we call a MacGuffin, which is just an important object that probably will pay off in some way, shape, or form. Um, think the Maltese Falcon, think the uh, Ark from uh, Indiana Jones, this kind of stuff. So he's carrying that around, and eventually Adar takes it. And in that moment, you see uh, his true nature, which is that he loves his mom and that he would do anything for him. And again, you just got to dig a little deeper into some of this stuff to really pay off. Uh, what did you think about um, this plot? And moving into uh, Arendir and Bronwyn as well. Um, it was my least... That one and the Harfoots were my least favorite. Um, even though, like, I again, I think I grew to like both of them, both the Harfoot storyline and the storyline as the show went on. And I think it's because I I started enjoying it a lot more because it it tied into the main action of the story. The orcs were the like clearest sort of antagonists in the show and they fully appeared in their horribleness in this section of the story. Um, So that I enjoyed. I think I struggled with Theo in the beginning just because I found found him grading i found him really annoying kid actors kid actors um but overall like i said i feel like the show got better as as it neared the end and so like it's hard it's hard to rank them all in 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 a very specific way because you know they all started out bad some started better off than others and they all ended at the sort of the same level because they all started connecting to one another. So yeah, I, I think that's my thoughts. That like I'm I'm glad that the main action of the story started taking shape through this storyline because it was getting annoying to not have any drama in this show. 
I uh, I agree with that by a large part. Um, the earlier part of the plot, I mean, this is kind of a big thing with the show in a large sense is that once we kind of break it down, you start to see that a lot of the earlier episodes. So if any of you guys have watched this, um, listeners and are like, oh, well, and now it's all spoiled for you, but are like, huh, you know, I kind of fell off. Maybe I just want to know what ended up happening. Well, now you know. But um also, you know, some of the the later episodes, I think, are far stronger. And uh, moving into the second season, you're going to get a lot more um, stuff. And just because it's spoiled for you doesn't really mean anything. I mean, a lot of people, I know a lot of reviewers have actually predicted a lot of the stuff that ended up happening just because, you know, it is mechanically um, the most interesting way to go and ended up being what ended up happening. So that said, um, Erinder and Bronwyn have so much screen time and they seem to be rekindling another thing from the original trilogy, the forbidden love between Arwen and Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, which is something that is largely absent in the books and is much more prevalent in the movies because the producers wanted a love plot. I'm, I'm not going to get into the politics of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy from the turn of the millennium, but there was a lot of people putting their money into this and seeing money go out. And Harvey Weinstein was involved in the early part of it, which is kind of its own issue because Harvey was, and as we know, because of a movie coming out this year, kind of kind of a not very nice guy. Um, so getting back into mildly. that, a lot of politics. <laughs> to put it mildly, go watch She Said if you want to know everything. Or just, you know, Pandora's read box, a paragraph. Read the news. Yeah, his news or a paragraph of his Wikipedia page. Uh, however, okay. So getting back to R&D and Bronwyn, yeah. um, two people who are actually very, very kind and, and have nothing to do with that horrible, horrible man. Uh, they're also a little two-dimensional. Um, they are bouncing around a lot of different places, obviously. Um, the show bounces around a lot of different places. And so um, you don't really get a sense of really what makes either of these people tick you know Arendir is a little bit of a bad boy um Bronwyn is obviously more of the kindly um maiden type mom character but you, you just don't get much you don't get much and um because of them getting folded into the main plot they're a lot more interesting once they are going against all odds and fighting in battle so Probably something that could have been front-loaded is a lot more of that tension. Certainly, they could have added in more skirmishes to make that more of a norm. Instead, you get sort of a big divide between these characters in the first half and the latter half. Um, obviously, they're not auxiliary in that latter half, and so I would say that they are redeemable in some ways, um, but just a, kind of a wash. Um also, I mentioned the um, rushed reveal that also is on my C grade. Um, I wanted to mention, um, because this is on my notes, but I didn't mention it already, that there is kind of this moment that you do see in a lot of IP stuff that is largely absent from this Lord of the Rings show that I have very little time for, which is when Adar almost breaks the fourth wall and says, no, the I'm paraphrasing here, no, the Southlands must have a new name. And you can almost see the dot, dot, dot from the script. And he's like gazing off into the distance, heavily implying that the new name is Mordor. I mean, we all kind of connected in our own brains. It's, I think, a little cheap. Um, I think these writers have a lot better dialogue in them. So, um, but obviously 
that's going to be a temptation with every property. Plenty of great writers have done the same kind of things. But in the end, I think it's more goofy than meaningful. What's your take? Are, are you a fan service fan? Are you as divisive on this as I am? Where, where are you at? Again, I mean, I feel like we beat the mortar <laughs> horse dead at this point. Like I said, I I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't. I didn't think it was fan service. I think it just related to the main drama of the story. Um, I didn't. I didn't really mind that it had that moment had a lot more dressing. Okay. <laughs> just because it felt like something that was the whole show was building towards anyway. That makes sense. I mean, I didn't really want to retrench old battlegrounds literally but um i i just uh as a writer you know lines of dialogue like that might have flagged you i I thought i'd ask um moving on from that Uh, it was well and it was fine you know totally valid for people to do stuff like that and it's it's about kind of what temperature you're at um we are in a particular societal um overdrive on ip and so i pretty quickly will um will bump up against a lot of stuff that feels like we are getting into this sort of like Marvel-esque interconnected territory. I just really like stories that feel like stories. Um, And because the show has so much of that, um, a lot of that novelistic quality to it, that's where I'm, I'm bumping. Um, one final thing, Muriel had to mention because she plays a lot in the show, but again, there are a, such a big host of main characters. None of them really gain that much focus. Um, once Muriel is introduced later in, um, Gladriel is frequently sharing the spotlight with her, so she doesn't really get the time to develop. Um, and it's really unclear in four and five whose arc is supposed to be advanced. And who is Muriel? Um, exactly. The Queen Regent of Numenor is uh her thing she goes alongside um the the two halibrand and gladriel to fight in the battle and so she's noteworthy in that way but along with isildur actually and and his father right we didn't talk about isildur's storyline at all please talk about the isildur storyline he's another one that i probably would have put in my c grade because you know there are so many again so many of these characters and some of them are like Heck yeah. And some of them are like, okay, all right. Well, you're here. Isildur is the character from at least, you know, from the movies and from the main series of books uh, that defeats like Sauron in the in the prologue of those stories. He's the one that has a chance to throw away the ring in Mount, uh, in Mount Doom and destroy it forever. But he chooses not to because he's corrupted by it. This is like his origin story, basically. There you go. Well, yeah. and he just isn't uh, really like, again, a lot of these new Orians, I'm like, okay, cool. You're here. You're clearly someone who is kind of important, but yeah, Asuldur and Muriel and Galadriel all in that area. That was, that was kind of a wash for me, unfortunately, just really didn't, um, didn't glom. So that's, that's my take. Um, so we've talked for a while on this. Um, do you have any final thoughts on the Rings of Power? Are you excited for a second season? Do you feel like you have enough that you've glommed onto here that you're going to continue on this? Um, or are you going to stick by House of the Dragon for season I mean, two I will instead? definitely always stick to House of the Dragon simply because we, we landed, we landed our dragon in the same roost. Uh, so to speak, um, because we both were like, oh, we're excited of where the story is going in House of the Dragon, because the Dance of Dragons has finally begun, that civil war, that main conflict 
that main juicy drama has finally begun. Here, you know, I am interested in specific sort of characters and interactions. I'm specifically interested in like Sauron, because Sauron is now in Mordor again. That's where he ends up. Um, I'm interested to see where Gandalf is going with his story. And I'm interested to see where Galadriel and Elrond are going with their story. It feels like the Harfoots are no longer important to the story whatsoever, that they will be completely dropped along with, you know, uh, the family in the Southlands, because I feel like their story is completely done too. Um, But that's what I mean. Like, I'm interested, but I'm not excited, you know, so I'm willing, I'm willing to watch the first couple of episodes to be like, all right, I I am willing to give this another chance to to hopefully see where they're going to take it. But with House of the Dragons, I'm I'm not just excited, <laughs> I'm pumped. Yeah, because because obviously, like I know where the story is going from my knowledge of of that world, and uh, and that doesn't make me less excited because I'm because I'm so happy at the way they've been adapting it already that it just makes me excited to see their interpretation of it. Well, and I feel like a lot of the stuff that um, maybe pumped you up on House of the Dragon really pumped me up in the end of The Lord of the Rings. We finally get a villain here, and he's not either of the people that we previously thought it was. Um, It's Halibrand, who has a lot of development in this season, and we really get to know as a character before that reveal. So we get an interesting villain, finally. Um, Adar is a little one note, and so it's really nice to see someone who, moving into season two, can give us a little bit of that heal. Of course, in House of the Dragon, there is a great antagonist as well, and so you really get to know them as well, and I'd say it's pretty equal in that way. So there's a lot of material here. Um, We've been given short shrift in the stuff that works, I think, occasionally, but um, being interested in uh, critical analysis... There's a lot of epic material in the Rings of Power. Um, Before turning it into a MacGuffin, the Sword of Sauron was an important tool to see Theo's state of mind, and it says more in visual language than some TV can show in hours of content. And so while I didn't like that it hazily moved from point A to point B in some areas that we've covered, there is still something moving and striking. Once episode 7 rolls around, similar to you, um, I think that it really picks up once we really get to gaze into the hellfire of what was the Southlands and move forward from there. So once we do that, I'm all in. Some critics have said, and I agree, that both in House of the Dragon and The Rings of Power, that pacing was something that had to be compromised to keep the show at a healthy clip. Um, And I actually agree that in both cases, it wasn't um, meant that we are allowed to properly empathize with the characters in some ways. They um, limit some of that in order to just keep the pace and get to a endpoint. Um, once you start with an endpoint and work backwards, that kind of ends up happening. You see that in a lot of major stuff. Um, I think that's a big thing that happens in some of uh, the sci-fi of your stuff like Foundation, where he's you know introducing characters at a pretty high clip. Now, Foundation is beloved by many, and so that being said, maybe there's a case for that. But in my area... I really like character-based. I like something that feels very small, very intimate, and I think The Rings of Power allows you to see a little bit of that. Um, neither of the shows, obviously, are, are are bad at all. I think both of them have easily earned a, a second season. Um, in fact, not only are they not bad, I think both of them are really 
seismic and important pieces of TV culture and the TV landscape, but I also think they deserve recalibration, and I think um, there is a lot of stuff to be learned in both parties. So once they get their nose pointed in in the direction in Rings of Power, I think there is so much to love. Um, House of the Dragon obviously already has its nose pretty dead center. So um, Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, similarly works in the Rings of Power show. Um, I think there's some fun measures to be made along the way. I mentioned that it reminds me of when Disney rebooted this uh, Star Wars saga in 2015. It has all of these familiar benchmarks of a Lord of the Rings plot. It gets the tone right, um, and even more so than I think the Hobbit trilogy which veered away from the source material quite a bit. Um, But similar to uh, The Force Awakens in some areas, there is a little bit of emptiness. Um, The moments that should be affecting might not be, and um, some of the characters are just sort of these blank slates that could either be imbued with a lot of vigor and interest. Um, Obviously, we saw how that panned out in the Star Wars world, and so this is, I think, a moment to see that through to the end a moment where you can take this great watchability, these wonderful images, and bolster it and make something awesome. Obviously, none of these things that I've just talked about are um, like hard or uh, are easy, are easy to pull off. In fact, they are the hardest thing to see through to the end. Uh, making something that is perfect on this scale is nigh impossible. Uh, and unprecedented it's wonder that these eight hours managed to hold on to its material just as strongly as it does in fact it is maybe even more ambitious than the house of the dragon so thus turns a little buggy in some places but that's the rings of power we are zeitgeist this has been another episode maybe a little bit longer than some of them we'll see how it ends up panning out in the edit Um, But we have a whole lot to say on this. Um, Hopefully our next episode is going to be just a little bit tighter than this one. We also have one coming a little bit sooner than you probably have been waiting for previously. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for coming back around. And we have plenty, plenty more to come on Zeitgeist. I'm Jordan Conrad. And I am Evil Boss. And we are signing off today. Um, Next episode, we're talking movies. So get ready. Um... Get ready for us to be a little bit more critical. And until then, uh, take care. Good night. Happy watching.